0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we look at unlikely alliances formed in our animal kingdom with those from the microbiota. Now, microorganisms have an important role to play. Not only in the past, maybe lurking in, for example, the DNA of koalas, through to the present, where they can team up to help improve fruit flies' digestive systems and our own, as well as helping coral take on much larger prey. If you look inside the genome, you'll find a whole bunch of just weird stuff laying around. Parts of DNA that don't seem to make much sense. Stubs that don't seem to do anything logical or have any real purpose, or aren't actively involved. You'll hear this term thrown often around as junk DNA. But the reality is it's not actually junk. In a lot of the cases, they are leftover bits of DNA that we've had some interaction with as a course of development as a species. But now it just lies there inert, unused and forgotten. And in the case of some parts of our DNA, you'll actually find retroviruses that have been hanging around in our DNA for millions of years. At one stage, they were virulent, disease-causing forms that actually really, really damaged us. But over time, these viruses, once we learnt and developed an immunity to them, or they stopped being as effective. Uh, The DNA was left behind as a remnant, as a relic and a reminder of what they once did. And they now journey along with us in our genome. And this is one example of some of the stuff lurking inside junk DNA. These little pieces of degraded and damaged retrovirus DNA that is now harmless that just gets passed down through the generations. But a group of scientists working together from the United States to Europe and Berlin in Germany and to Australia have taken a deep dive into the junk DNA of the cuddly and cute koala bear and has recently published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, when we look at the human DNA, you can see that most or even the youngest leftover bit of retrovirus hanging around in our DNA is around 5 million years old. Now, that's probably good news for us, but it's not particularly useful if you're trying to study that retrovirus and get an understanding for why or how it ended up in the DNA in the first place. So we don't really know how exactly that virus DNA got into our system in the first place. But in koalas, they're one of the very few species that are currently fighting off an ongoing invasion of of their germline by a retrovirus. And that is particularly exciting, particularly for people like Alfred Rocker, one of the authors of the study and associate professor in the Department of Animal Sciences at the University of Illinois. Now, retroviruses, like other viruses, they attack first from the outside. They don't just magically end up in your DNA. They enter the body and then they fuse with the cells and then they release or insert their contents, their own pieces of DNA, into the genetic code of their host. They hijack the host's DNA replicant reading machinery to make more copies of themselves, and that's the way a viral infections work. But the problem is, if they manage to find their way into the sperm and egg cells, those retroviral genes get passed on to the host's offspring. That means they become a permanent part of the reproductive genome, which is known as the germline. Sometimes this leads to disastrous effects for the host, but over time the sequences and and they stop coding the disease parts of the retrovirus and weed out through natural selection, and they just left the rest of the virus behind. So all the harmful parts are just weeded out, and you're just left over with the retrovirus's junk DNA, and until now, scientists really had no idea how or why this happened. And it's particularly interesting uh, because when you think about it, when a virus is infecting a host, well, it makes sense for them to replicate as much of themselves as possible, to spread and fully engage and breed across the host. But if the host dies, then the virus is out of luck. So it's not very much in the virus's incentive to actually keep killing the host. They want it to keep chugging along. And if they get into the germline, the the genetic material of the next generation, then they really don't want to kill that next generation either because they're going to kill themselves too. So why does it learn to play nice and how does that process take place? Now, this retrovirus has been attacking the koala genome for a little while now. Scientists think around 50,000 years. But it hasn't actually developed a fixed location yet in the genome, which means we can monitor how it spreads and moves and evolves in the koala genome. And what's interesting about that is that when scientists, including Ulrich Luber, a researcher at the Leibniz Institute for Zoo and Wildlife Research in Berlin, who's the study's lead and first author, when they started to examine the position of the koala genome and how the virus is trying to slot itself in, they found that the koala genome is fighting back and it's fighting fire with fire. Now, what they found is that an even older retrovirus, which is unrelated to the current virus infecting koalas, is inserting itself into the new retrovirus. They're recombining and deactivating it. And basically, this old retrovirus that once millions of years ago invaded the koala genome has actually now been used by the current koala genome to help pacify and desensitize and remove all the nasty bits of the current invading force. What better way to deactivate a virus than one you've already pacified and turned into just a junk part of your DNA? Now this is a really interesting and exciting molecular defense mechanism for hosts against new retroviral attacks by basically reusing, like in the idea of a vaccine, these ancient retroviral elements. This is a great natural method. But the problem is, it shows how little we know about genetic diversity and reservoirs of retroviruses amongst wildlife. Because whilst we are studying this, for example, in koalas, it's not usually a species associated with biomedical breakthroughs. So whilst we have an idea of its genome, we don't really know a lot about the entire population cohort. However, since there is about an 8% overlap between the human genome and the koala genome, it gives us a good insight into what could happen for humans. Now, unfortunately for koalas, the pacification and degradation of this new invading retrovirus will take a long time, a very long time, maybe 100,000 or so years. That's bad if you're koala because, especially in northern Australia, means you'll continue to suffer from these retrovirus-linked cancers, immune suppression, and which often leads to other secondary diseases like chlamydia, which is a huge plague and problem for our koala population in Australia. Now, hopefully this shows a pathway for researchers to develop a koala retrovirus vaccine, which will help deal with this large problem of cancers, immune suppression, and other diseases like chlamydia plaguing the koala populations of Australia. And that's what researchers like Rebecca Johnson from the Australian Museum are very, very keen on doing. Rebecca Johnson in particular led some of the recent efforts to help sequence the koala genome that made a lot of this research into the mechanisms possible. So this is a great collaboration with researchers from the United States, Germany, and Australia, working together to help shed light onto a hundreds, thousands, hundreds and thousands year-long battle inside the koala genome. And gives us an insight into what those junk pieces of DNA, or some of them, floating around in our own DNA might be doing. Everyone is surrounded by a variety of microorganisms and bacteria. In fact, we each have our own personal bunch of bacteria and microorganisms that live on our skin, in our follicles, in our cavities, and also inside our stomachs as well. And these bacteria, viruses, fungi that form part of our microbiota have basically an important part, and integral part of human existence. And not just humans for that matter. We're not the only ones who are surrounded by microorganisms. Pretty much everything is. And when you look at the full body, there's different communities on the body surfaces and in the mucus. But the most diverse and interesting bacteria community that you can find in the human body dwells inside the human digestive system. And that is where it needs to be to help us digest our food. In normal conditions, when the microbiota is in balance, this actually really, really helps the host organisms because that bacteria helps Promote and break down the food inside your gut, lead to the right breakdown of nutrients, and protect our body against some invading pathogens. For example, if you have some pathogens coming here that might cause intestine infections, your body can fight back with the bacteria that's already living inside it. And it's in their interest too. If if you're to get sick and to throw up a lot, for instance, that might throw them up in the process, and that's not good for anyone involved. So, this symbiosis with our microbiota is incredibly important. Now, the interesting part, this full health benefit that you get from having a healthy microbiota, is particularly interesting to look at in other creatures. It's a little bit tricky to study inside the human being because of the large amount of diversity. But if you turn to the handy tool of a lot of scientific researchers, Drosophila, laboratory flies, then you can actually do some. Pretty interesting studies, and that's exactly what researchers in Portugal, from the Gulbenkian Institute of Science, have been doing. They've been trying to figure out how bacteria manages to colonise inside the fruit fly and spread, particularly from the wild situations into the lab, or vice versa, and what impact this colonisation or spread of different bacteria species might have. And what they've found is that, well, these fruit flies are basically undertaking a little bit of a farming process. They are farming different species of bacteria and trying to spread the ones that they like and the ones that help them. This research was done by Inez Pius and researcher fellow researcher Luis Teixares from IGC. Now, what they found in particular is that the bacterial community hanging around *Drosophila* is incredibly stable and very interesting. Laboratory flies, which are pretty much used all across the world in research studies, often have bacteria on them, but they're not able to get into or colonize the Drosophila or fruit flies' intestine, and that's particularly interesting, because in the wild, the bacteria that are found on wild Drosophila are actually pretty commonly found inside their intestines and help colonize and spread through that. The lab-grown ones they rather coat use their coatings and things and their feet and their and their appendages and that's how they spread and carry bacteria and that's pretty interesting because the wild flies bacterias are much more able to colonize and thus spread and their intestines are kept constant with different levels of bacteria depending on what's colonized them so what they found is that these fruit flies practice a kind of farming by growing and transporting with them the bacteria from their local environment that are then passed on to the next generation when through growing and feeding. And thus, those fruit flies gain all the benefits that they've had in their development, their fertility and their digestion from these bacteria and they pass it along. Similarly, if you want to think about it, to the way in which we use yeast, another microorganism, to bake bread, or bacteria to make yogurt. These fruit flies are doing the same thing. And when they get a good recipe and a good stable bread base or yeast culture for their yogurt, they pass it on to other people to use as the base for theirs. And that's basically what the bacteria are doing. And what's interesting in these fruit file studies is we can actually have a stable bacterial population in the fruit flies and they're pretty straightforward to study and you can make fruit flies pretty easily that don't have any bacteria so you can watch as the bacteria spreads into that group of fruit flies so we can learn a lot about how bacteria can spread and colonize different areas and communities which will help us understand disease vectors or the way our microbiota may be changed through just the transmission of this bacteria for example, things like dengue virus and malaria, that's one example. But in general, looking at the balance of someone's microbiota and how that can change over time is incredibly interesting. And so that's some great work being done at the Instituto Gulbeckian de Socienia about how Drosophila fruit flies, farm and collect bacteria that's helpful for them and pass it on to the next generation. And give us an insight into how bacterial colonization works in fruit flies and maybe even in our own stomachs. turn from a microorganism like bacteria, helping a larger but still pretty small organism like *Drosophila* fruit flies, engage in a symbiotic type relationship, to another symbiotic relationship, not this time between two different species, but two different types of coral interacting with each other, helping each other out to take on a much larger foe. In this case, we're talking about the relationship between different types of cave-dwelling corals in the Mediterranean Ocean, and how instead of normally, as they do, fighting each other, they've turned their attention on invaders and teamed up to help take down and eat, more interestingly, stinging jellyfish. Now, scientists who have been studying this from the University of Edinburgh have actually made the discovery that near the coast of Sicily, hanging around in the caves and the cliffs on the coastline. There's certain types of corals, and these corals have been caught in the act of working together to trap and to sting to death and then consume jellyfish. And that is pretty exciting when you think about it. When you think of coral, you think of these bright, beautiful species that are like static, like trees. You don't often think of trees working together together to take down birds, but that's basically what's happened here. The different species of coral, which are made up of large communities of plankton working together, basically building themselves under this huge forest, so that it's not like it's a tree, it's actually a collection, collective, of small microorganisms. And these microorganisms can work together. They're already working together in a colony, but they can work with other corals as well. In particular, the species they're looking at is the Asteroides calcularis, And by working together, they get access to larger meals. They can go after bigger prey. Now, for example, the Pelagia noctilia, or the Marv stinger, is one of the most painful stinging jellyfish for swimmers in the Mediterranean. And so what these researchers have found is that you can watch these jellyfish be attacked and eaten by the coral. It's particularly funny because these species aren't very new. They've been around for ages, and scientists are very, very familiar with them. But it wasn't until researchers, including researchers from the Italian National Research Council and the University of Edinburgh, actually started studying and getting material and diving with these corals. They realised that, hang on a second, these corals are actually working together and eating the jellyfish. So it goes to show that we can learn a lot still, about our creatures, our environment, and how they can work together to take on much larger foes. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, La Green Joint. From viruses left behind in koalas' DNA to the collaboration between fruit flies and their farmed bacteria, Kora are working together to help take on bigger prey. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Anatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.